You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from the letter to the Romans, chapter 6. We'll read together verse 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Our text this afternoon is God's word as we confess and summarize it in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Where is Christ promised? that he will wash us with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated where scripture calls baptism the washing of rebirth and the washing away of sins. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, 
For many years, Martin Luther lived in fear of God's righteous judgment. You see, Martin Luther, he, he knew something very sure, very clearly, and that was that he is a sinner. He knew that God was a righteous God. God was a God who punished sinners. And he could never be sure if he had done quite enough to keep God happy. Then he learned the truth of the scriptures, that God forgives sins, and he forgives the sins of those who believe in him, those who trust in him. The righteous will live by faith. But still, although he knew this, at times Martin Luther would have some doubts. The devil would come and would bring accusing thoughts in his mind. Martin, you're, you're a sinner. Well, Luther writes about these experiences, and he says there's, there's one thing that you should say to the devil when this happens. And that one thing that Martin Luther recommends you say is, I have been baptized. Well, the devil comes and puts accusing thoughts in your mind. You say, I'm a son of God. I have been baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ who was crucified for me. Let me alone, devil. Then, says Luther, then these, these thoughts will leave you. I have been baptized. For some of us, our baptism happened many years ago, and we can't even remember it. But in his darkest hours, those that was the thing that Martin Luther held on to. Well, this afternoon we're allowed to give attention to what the Bible teaches about baptism. What does it mean that you have been baptized? Or, if you are still learning about the Lord and coming to faith, what might it mean for you to be baptized? This afternoon I summarized God's word for you under the following theme. Baptism signifies and seals God's promises to us. And we'll see two points. We'll see God promises to wash us with Christ's blood. And the second place, to wash us with Christ's spirit. Our catechism states at the beginning that Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit washed away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. There's really quite a confession implicit in this statement. It's a confession that many people today would actually find offensive and even much of modern psychology would tell you is is unhealthy. And that's the confession that you and I are are dirty, that we're impure and that we need to be washed. When you think about it, that's that's quite something to admit. But it's very plainly what the Bible teaches. Actually, already in the the third chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about how Adam and Eve, how they fell into sin. Sin entered this world through one man. And there our nature became so sinful that every day we sin against God. In writing to the Christians in the city of Rome, the Apostle Paul describes the situation 
that mankind is in it, is in right now. He says in Romans 1 verse 26, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. He continues later in this letter, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's quite a list of sin, isn't it? And according to the Bible, these are the sins that all of mankind has has plunged themselves into. Now, it's true that not everyone in the world commits each of these sins that we just read. But Paul continues to write in chapter 3. He says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. He says, there is... There's no one righteous. No, not one. No one can keep God's law perfectly. Galatians 3, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So this is what Martin Luther, that that young monk, this is what he realized very clearly. And he was plagued by persistent thoughts of spiritual inadequacy. He felt compelled to confess every little sin that he had committed. And he had a friend, von Staupitz, who he would confess his his sins to. At least once, Luther spent six hours confessing sins to von Staupitz. He later wrote, I was myself more than once driven to the very depths of despair so that I wish I had never been created. You see, Luther, he was trying to make things right between himself and God. And he understood, he understood correctly that God was a just God. And if there's just just one sin that has not been washed away, that would be enough to send him to hell forever. The Bible tells us clearly that God's standard for us is perfection. God commands perfect love for him and also for our neighbor. Apostle Paul explained to the church in Corinth what this looked like. He said, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Someone said about this passage that you should... You should take away the word love 
and insert your name in the blank. I am patient. I am kind. I keep no record of other people's wrongs. I always trust. I, I always hope. When you do this, you realize, brothers and sisters, that there's no one who can't agree with what we read in our catechism. Our souls are dirty. Our souls are impure. If God was to enter into judgment with you or I, who could stand? We would rather be like Luther in such depths of despair that we'd we'd wish we had never been born at all. All our wrong thoughts, all our stray words, they stand exposed before God. What wretched people we are. In Acts chapter 2, we read about a group of people who, who realize this. They realized very clearly that they were sinners. They had committed actually the, the most horrible, heinous sin that's ever been, that's ever been committed in the history of the world. They knew it, and they were cut to the heart. They had crucified on the cross God's own Son. They cried to Peter, the Apostle Peter, and they said to him, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So God, he has provided a way of escape. A way to become righteous, apart from obeying the law. Righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, Romans 3.22. Christ died on the cross in our place. And God laid on him the the punishment that we deserve. His blood was poured out for us. God tells us this so many times in the Bible. That one text that so moved Martin Luther was Romans 1 verse 17, where he read, The righteous will, will live, that is, live and not die. The righteous will live by faith. But God in his love for us, he has given us more. He's, he's told us this often in his word, but he's even given us more. He's given us the sacrament of baptism to show us in a, a very visible way. So Peter also says to the Jews, he says, repent and be baptized. Now this does not mean that the, the water of baptism itself washes away sins. It's the blood and spirit of Christ that wash away the impurity of my soul. But the water baptism is, is rather a picture of what God does for us in Christ's blood. The Lord Jesus is, we confess, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and who washed our, sorry, and who washed us from our sins 
by his own blood. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and by his blood that our sins are washed away. So we've just seen how God's word has told us that the Lord clearly tells us how we are forgiven our sins through Christ's blood poured out for us on the cross and how baptism is, is a symbol or a picture of that. But baptism, the Bible tells us, is not just a picture. It's a picture that clearly shows us something, but it, it's more, it's more than that. But rather, it's a, a specific picture that God has attached a promise to. He's connected his promise to this picture. And that makes it also not just a, a sign, but it makes it also a seal. It has God's, you could say, God's stamp of guarantee on it. What this means is that the, the doctrine of baptism, it can never stay just a, just an abstract theory. The idea of forgiveness of sins can never just be some, some idea up out there in the sky that we can, we can understand. But rather, the doctrine of forgiveness of sins always is very personal. You cannot say, well, perhaps it's true, maybe perhaps true for, for other people. No, God, God has said this to you when you're baptized. As surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul. This is a promise that when we're baptized, we receive from God. And we can hold on to it, we can, we can believe it. We can believe that it's true. God guarantees it. This is an important point. Because the sacrament, it must be believed. It's possible for us to, to get hung up, hung up on this point. For although we know that baptism is a sign and seal of God's promise, we also know that there are those who are baptized and later in life turn their back on the Lord and fall away from the faith. Then we might wonder, well, what actually happened to God's promise there? But brothers and sisters, God's promises, they never change. God is an unchanging God, and He is always faithful to what He says. His promises are are always there, but they also come with the condition that they be believed. Otherwise, you don't receive the covenant blessings, but rather the covenant curses. This can be a, a source of comfort for us throughout an entire life. For God's promises are, are there our whole life. There's a condition that they be believed and be accepted by faith. But even this condition, even this faith is, is something that God does. When we believe, it's God who has made us believe. Ephesians 2 verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. That's part of the what we call the mystery of faith. That our faith is 100% God's work, and yet God also calls us in his word to believe in him and to accept his promises. Do you see then, congregation, how much God loves you? 
that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, to wash you with his blood. And even more than that, he's, he's giving you a sign to seal this, this sacrament to you. If the message stopped there, though, would that still be enough? It's surely a, a wonderful truth. But would that be enough for you? If we said our, our sins are washed away, all, all Christ's works are counted to our account, would that be enough for you? That God gives you a, a clean slate and you get to have another try. Brothers and sisters, there's more that God tells us, he does for us. And that's what we find also in the sacrament of baptism. And that's our second point, that God promises not only to wash us with Christ's blood, but also with his spirit. When we fell into sin, when our, our forefather Adam fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3, we became not only guilty of sin, but also our whole nature became corrupt. And you can see this right away when you read through Genesis chapter 3. After the fall into sin, the Lord came to Adam and asked him, what had you done? And Adam immediately blames his wife. Perhaps because we know the story so well, this, this doesn't seem unusual. But if you actually stop to think of it, this is something that was totally out of character for Adam. The day before, he would have never, never have done that. Before he was perfect. But now there's, there's a massive change that has taken place in his heart. His heart is not only guilty, but it's also corrupt. And so he blames his sin on other people. And so you see then that we, we need more. We need more than just our, our sins washed away. For we have a corrupt nature. And unless we're, we're freed from that corrupt nature, we're still slaves of sin. In the United States, about 150 years ago, in the, in the 1860s, slavery was abolished. You may know how President Lincoln at that time, he declared that all the African-American slaves, how they were, were free. However, the morning that these slaves woke up free, most of them still had no land, no money, no possessions, no job prospects. So, who could they work for? Well, their, their old master had some work that needed to be done. Where would they buy the, the food that they needed for living? Well, their old master would, would sell them some food. So although they were in theory free, their old masters could set their wages as low as they liked. And also could charge them as much as they liked for their food. So although they were theoretically free, these former slaves were actually, in many cases, worse off than when they had been slaves. They had been set free from any legal claim of their master, but they were not given a new life. And so, in effect, they had nowhere to go, and so they were still slaves. It's a very heartbreakingly sad history. What we need to realize is that it would also be the same 
for you and I spiritually. If God just forgave our sins, if he declared us free so that Satan no longer had any claim on us, but didn't give us a new life, we would simply be plunged right back into slavery. We'd have, as it were, nowhere else to go. Our nature is corrupt, and our nature, the only thing it can do is sin. But the wonderful message of the gospel is that God does more. He not only forgives our sin, but he also renews our hearts by his Holy Spirit. He gives us, as it were, a a new life. That's what we read about in Romans chapter 6. Earlier in the, the letter to the Romans, Paul has explained the, the glorious gospel or the glorious message of justification. That through Christ we have all our sins washed away and we have eternal life. And then at the very beginning of, of chapter 6, he asks an important question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So if I'm not saved by my righteous living, why should I bother living rightly now? If that can't make me any more saved than I already am saved, why shouldn't I sin some more? That way I'll be able to experience God's grace in an even greater way. But Paul, he strongly rejects this idea. He says, by no means, or absolutely not. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? All of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. What this means is that when a person believes in Christ, they are united with him. That means that all Christ's works are credited to their account. But also, also his death. Christ's death on the cross is considered by, de- by God to be their death. So the death which they deserved, Christ died on the cross. Paul says, we died to sin. So this means that it no longer has any hold on us. It says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. So in the same way that we share in the benefits of Christ's death, since we've been united to him through faith, so also we share in the the benefits of his resurrection. We are raised to a new life. So we're free from our slavery to sin. We We have a new life. You notice the the finality with which the apostle speaks. He says in verse 2, we, we died to sin. He says, verse 6, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. So he's speaking here about not just a, a temporary thing, but a once-off, a definitive break with sin. 
Paul is emphasizing that the mastery of sin over our life, that that mastery has been broken. Sin is no longer the, the dominating influence or power in our lives. You see, before a person becomes a believer, they are slaves to sin. This means that you, you can't say no to a particular sin when it comes on your radar. So this doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they possibly could be. God restrains the, the wickedness of mankind. But it means that of themselves, unbelievers, they, they have no power to say no to sin. However, the wonderful truth of the gospel is that for believers, that power has been broken. It's true we still struggle with sin. In the very next chapter, Romans 7, that's, that's Paul's topic. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So he still, he still struggles against sin. We still have temptations. But the important thing to realize is that sin is, is no longer the dominating power in your life. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin. He says, that's how we should, that's how we should think about ourselves. So we can never say to ourselves, well, I might as well just do it. I can't really, can't really help it anyways. The Bible tells us that God does give us the power to resist sin. We need to consider ourselves as people who are dead to sin, that sin has no influence on us. You can imagine with those, those slaves in the 1860s, that a freed slave might be walking down the street and he might come across his old master. And then if the master was to begin to, to yell at him and to order him around, it'd be certainly hard for that slave to, to just walk away. If you've been a slave your whole life, if you're used to following orders, just to say no and, and walk away, that'd be very difficult. But if he knows that he is free, if he knows that this, this master has no power over him, that's precisely what he'll do. So knowing that you're free from sin, knowing that you're not a slave, that's, that's the first step. Paul continues in verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. So he means... Don't give in to sin, but fight back. Say no to the old master. Avoid, flee from sin, flee from, from places that cause you to sin. Do not give the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought back from death to life. So instead of serving God, or instead of serving sinful desires, we serve God. This is the, the new life that God gives us. That should be our, our focus. Instead of being busy with, with sinful things, we should rather be busy in His kingdom, doing the right thing. This is a lifelong process. It's a process in which we're going to fall many, many times. Well, brothers and sisters, the truth of the gospel to you is that 
The decisive break has been made in your life when you became a believer. We have God's Spirit working in our hearts. So more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. So we can say no to sin. We can experience victories over temptations and sin in our life. And our fight against sin is not just a, not just a merry-go-round where we, we go around and around with those same sins. But by the grace of the Holy Spirit, our life is, is rather a vortex where we, we go up. We make progress in our walk of faith with God. And this too is part of God's promise at baptism. That's what the Apostle Peter said to those Jews when they realized they had killed the Lord Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive the Holy Spirit. That's God's promise that he attaches to baptism. We can believe it. We can hold on to it. Then the fact that I have been baptized, that can be a powerful comfort to us. The Lord has given us these promises. We believe them. We accept them in faith. Although we know that our sins are many, although we know that our sins are ugly, we have been washed by the blood of Christ. Though we continue to fight against sin, the power of sin it has been broken. Our corrupt nature has been washed through Jesus Christ. We are being made into new people. So if the devil should bring doubts into your mind, if the devil should accuse your heart, we can say with Luther so many years ago, I am a son of God. I have been baptized. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was crucified for me. Let me alone. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.